Welcome to the Pandora Podcast, where fellowship-trained pain specialists Dr. Melissa Cady and Dr. Kevin Cucaro reveal the secrets of pain care, including harmful practices, healthy tips, and the hope found through the science of pain. Please note, this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute a physician-patient relationship. Please discuss your medical issues with your personal health professional. For more information and free resources, visit Pandora.com. Now on to the show. Well, welcome back. I am Dr. Melissa Cady, joined by uh, Dr. Kevin Kakaro here on the Pandora podcast. And we have been diving into all kinds of things that are current, uh, including our pandemic or COVID-19 uh, pandemic that we've all been focused on. And it just can't get out of our, our news feeds and our ears and our eyes. Uh, but we're going to tap into a few things to start off with that we left off last time discussing just the impact that this pandemic of COVID-19 um, could have on our children. And I know for some of us, we think that, my goodness, sometimes we, we're, we're not used to maybe teaching our kids, maybe we have to homeschool a little bit and <laughs> remind ourselves of the things that we've forgotten a long time ago. Um, or it's an opportunity to just really you know, bond with your children, even if you're, you're, you know, stumbling through it and have the chance to, to just really enhance our relationships with our own family. And there's, there's also a lot more opportunity. I think there's a, a silver lining as hard as it is to see right now. Um, I think on the other side, we'll recognize that there was some enlightenment that comes with this uh, pandemic. Any, any thoughts on that, Dr. Kevin? Well, I, I mean, there's definitely going to be some things coming out of this, um, good and bad, but uh, it, it is remarkably, it's remarkable on what is going to reveal over the next few months, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> so when you're looking at, you know, we're talking about kids. And so we, we originally were going to talk about a little bit about education and we will, I want to hit that for sure. But I also started thinking about some of the other implications with this, because depending on the family structure or what your family's like, this could be a, an incredibly stressful event as well. So then we're starting to look at what are the long-term uh, effects of this kind of trauma. We can almost look at, you know, this is an acute trauma in certain families. Now mine, I have two kids. Um, luckily it has not been, I would say traumatic in any way, shape or form uh, other than them whining about homework or something sometimes. But um yeah, I mean, it, it, this is going to, this has changed a generation. In fact, I was reading, I think it was a New York Times article this morning uh, um, that someone was discussing with a colleague of theirs. And I couldn't, I don't remember if they were an epidemiologist or their medical or whatever, uh, but really what the future impact is going to be on, on how a new generation of people is going to live. In fact, they even said, they said, well, we just started to call them generation C, like generation COVID, right? <laughs> and it's true. Like, so what we know with the way this virus is sort of playing out right now, granted, we're only a month in, at least in the United States at this time, um, but it's going to shift the social dynamics heavily for, at a minimum, I'm thinking, between 12 and 18 months. So that's going to change schooling. That's going to change social practices. It's going to change athletics. Uh, for kids that are going to college, it's going to change how, you know, how is that going to play out? Because... Um, already, as kids have returned home from college, colleges are now delivering their classes online. So that's going to be a hard sell to say, you know, again, I know people want to go on campus, but um, 
that's going to be a hard sell to say, well, you have to go on campus in the future now that we've demonstrated that you can't. And so that may make a difference because now you're not having to pay room and board. Maybe, you know, my kids are in Oregon and if they want to go to, I don't know, somewhere on the East Coast, well, why can't they live in Oregon and, and pay cheaper rent somewhere and attend a university someplace else if you can do it virtually? So, um, yeah, it's going to be really, really, really interesting on the physical side, the mental health side, the social side, the educational side, lots of, lots of change coming. Yeah, no, I think that there's a, um, definitely this is a generation, I think it's going to impact all generations, but I think it's going to, um, of course, mold uh, the youngest generation in a way that uh, a lot of us have not had the same kind of concerns, fears, or beliefs that are being shifted throughout the course of all of this. But I do think that, you know, that you hear these comments about not having, you know, the kids in school, and we kind of tapped into that, but just this idea that there is a lot of opportunity um, amid the stress. Granted, there are people that are able to still work. Um, there's definitely a percentage of our population that either whether they're in healthcare or not, um, they're going to feel the, the impact in some way, um, but there are still some people that might be paid by the government or have, you know, they're retired and they're still getting their checks, um, assuming that'll keep happening, um, that they're not going to be, a, you know, an alarming situation with that. Um, but if there are parents that have children at home, that there's an opportunity for, to see the, the opportunity, I guess just seeing the opportunity versus the, the fear and concerns and stress that are innate with all of us there to some extent, if we're not working, but you can find an opportunity to teach your children a lot of different things that are, as many of us have recognized, despite the fact I have no children, I hear it from friends of mine. There are a lot of things that children do not learn um, that is so valuable for our life and, and even from physical activity, creating that physical activity and movement for your children, whether it's inside or outside, whatever's safest, um, or creating, you know, I don't know, doing projects together or teaching them how to do things around the house or fixing the car or, you know, the things that you feel like you never had time with, digging into those things you, you felt like you wish you could have done or had have time to do with your children, not just bonding with them, but um, hopefully not just getting on each other's nerves, but finding ways to, to have fun together um, versus just like chores that might seem not so uh, bonding, so to speak. But well, in, you're talking about things like even home ec, like yeah. teaching kids to te to cook. Like I can't think of, it's just remarkable to me that kids don't know how to cook. And mm -hmm. uh you know, how are you supposed to go out in the world and if you, don't, if you don't know how to prepare food and then you don't know how to prepare food and then all the restaurants go down, you know, so it's like, what are you supposed to right. do? So yeah, there's, there's, there's definitely some opportunities now for that. I do think if you have young kids, mm -hmm. uh, it is, this would be extraordinarily difficult to, and especially if you're working at home because, um, <laughs> that's a, that was rough. My kids, my kids are older, they're uh, 14 and 17. So they're pretty self-sufficient and self-directed and all that stuff. But man, when they're two, three, four, five, six, uh, that's a different story. And actually from, from friends that have homeschooled their kids, um, that actually takes a little bit more work. But the, the funny thing is when you're looking at education is, um, is how inefficient it is. Mm -hmm. Like in the traditional school setting where they're going to school for six or seven or eight hours or whatever, 
the actual learning that any individual kid is doing is not six or seven or eight hours. It's probably closer to maybe two if you're lucky, given all the stuff running around and dynamics and stuff like that. Um, so on the flip end of that is if you if you have a good curriculum, granted when your kids are younger, there's you there there's no more hand holding. You have to kind of direct them and sit with them through the process. But it, you don't have to sit there six to 10 hours. It may, you may be able to get down the exact same course load or more within two to four hours for someone who's in elementary school. Yeah. Uh, and as, as they move up, again, our friends who, or who've homeschooled have said that it, it, you, it gets less and less as a parent. So while they're in middle school, it's maybe, it maybe two hours or whatever and just help them with homework. And when they're in high school, they're pretty much self-regulating. Um, so so again, I, I feel for the people who have the really young kids because that's that I feel for them anyway because that's just tough. <laughs> it's yeah. Little kids like that is hard. Uh, but if you if you know once we start getting settled into this and start start starts to make sense again, I, I think they're going to do. I think people will be pleasantly surprised, like when they find out that their kids can learn everything that they were learning in school in two to three to four hours, maybe. Um, that provides them more time to do other things as well. So. Right. And I think, you know, there are things that you have to learn to do the tests. you know, we could have a whole other conversation on whether college is necessary. And that's depending what kind of person you're talking about. I mean, there are some entrepreneurial minded type of individuals that can create businesses and ideas and run with it. And they don't need the structure and they can create their own and are okay with falling on their face (laughs) multiple times and get back up. Um, but there's, there's other things that are not going to ever really be tested um, in the typical school curriculum. So I think it's what's really interesting, and this is just my opinion, is that I think fostering a, a level of curiosity with a significant other or a child of what really is stimulating to them from a, um, just from a, um, cerebral level that it's something that they they tend to lean into and be more inquisitive about that and kind of encourage them to dig deeper and, and learn more about that topic and those things and just help them learn to learn more of the things that really inspire them or make them happy or just bring general joy to their lives. I think it's it's what probably a lot of different types of schooling, different types of schooling methods where they favor towards their strengths or, you know, there's so many different philosophies on that, but I think there's a, a really unique opportunity too to help them learn things that maybe the, the school curriculum is not going to, you know, teach them. Uh, yeah. You could always add more, right. Or you can add a depth that isn't there. Um, one of the other super exciting things that I th- think might come out of this is this whole academic structure that we have doesn't need to be in this rigid academic structure, right? So if, if we are now creating course loads and, and you're delivering them per ability level or, or whatever your academic level is, you know, it doesn't make sense for if, you know, then they'll kind of do it now where say your kid is at what level in math and they'll may go to another classroom for that in elementary school. And then they come back for a reading or whatever, but it really seems to make sense Again, if you're doing this sort of dedicated prop platform where we can decentralize education now, that kids could be learning whatever. So there's no reason that they're restrained to a third grade reading program if they're in third grade. Instead, maybe if they're reading at a seventh or eighth or ninth grade, why aren't they being able to, 
you know, they should be able to take classes at that level. So now right. we have this, you know, instead of this one size fits all, and then we have little teeny light wire breakouts, instead it becomes a truly individualized healthcare system, not healthcare system, educational <laughs> system. There are some similarities. Yeah, there actually are quite a few similarities, yeah. similarities between big, big, big education and big healthcare. Um, but we can start actually seeing a personalized education. You know, like we always say that personalized health, Right. We have mm-hmm. personalized education where the kids go in, they're assessed, and they find out what their strengths, what their weaknesses are, and then they're put in the appropriate levels. And then if one accelerates, they keep going that way. And if they're, you know, it, it just, it, it could be really, really, really cool. Uh, yeah. As things go on. I uh, think, yeah. I, yeah. Sorry. No, no, no. You, you had something. No, there was something about just this idea of see, even the older ones seeing these younger people getting it. Like to me, it's kind of like it's a self fulfilling thing where it helps and like, kind of makes them not want to be the if this kid that's three years younger than me can get it I'm really slacking like as long as that environment culturally is embraced and there's no bullying of that kind of you know any negativity about that I think yeah. it, it helps everyone else learn and I don't know it ups the level it ups the level instead of lowering the level like what a, a lot of I I think again a, again being I'm the physician Obviously, I'm not an educator. I do a lot of education, and so I'm interested in that, but I obviously don't have the academic background there. Um, but it seems like a lot of the focus in healthcare has been to date of having a minimal level of expectations that they're trying to get everybody to, rather than having a high level of expectation for every individual student. Yeah. And that's a very different focus. Because when you're devising, and a lot of this has to do with the testing, and we don't have to talk about that, but... Um, you know, everybody has to pass this minimal standard. Well, the problem is if that's a minimal standard that you're working for, there's no desire to really exceed it so much. And the people who are already working hard get bored. Mm-hmm. Well, if you have a general higher level of, ex- of expectations, people tend to, you know, behaviors tend to uh, stretch towards yeah. high expectations or they'll diminish when there's low expectations. And if you're running around, you know, but, but I guess from, you know, again, this <laughs> is sort of getting off topic, but in our healthcare, in our education, not our healthcare system, in our education system, <laughs> you know, they would do all this stuff like makeup days and blah, blah, blah. So there's really no consequences because kids knew that the to, to do date wasn't the to do date. They did all this stuff again with the intention of trying to make sure everybody make this met this minimal level of activity. Well, that's what you're going to get. And in, in, I'm sitting here going, if the due date is this, then we should expect that the due date is that. And then if someone fails, then lo and behold, well, they need to learn that we have a high level of expectation for you. Right. Um, you know, it's just my, my daughter had in elementary school, she had a teacher who, who came in, he had been a middle school teacher. And it was amazing because he came in with a middle, middle, uh, uh, middle school mindset, right? And so his thing wasn't, I'm, well, now I'm in elementary school and so I have to teach less. Instead, he saw his students as, this is what I think you can do. Mm. And it was remarkable how that class mm. just outshone the rest of the school. Yes. And, you know, granted, he's a great teacher, but I also think it has a lot to do with expectations. When you start looking at this data, um, you know, again, setting expectations or what teachers expect from their students that changes the game on how education is delivered to them. So there's, uh, there was, there was studies with um, uh, the word that they used it. They called it the, the Pygmalion effect where they basically went in and told teachers that 
they took a random percentage of the class, like random 20% of the class. And they said that these are in one class, they said, these were all the extra bright kids. And then another class, yeah. they said this 20% was, these are the slow kids. Right. Yeah. And it was just total bogus. I mean, it wasn't yeah. actually based on anything. They just told us teachers and what they found at the end of the school year was when teachers thought that these particular kids were gifted or whatever, they, those kids scores went up. Yeah. And uh, they think it was through how they interacted in the nonverbal communication in the same way, in a dangerous way, if they were telling the, these teachers that um, these were the not gifted kids, those kids dropped. And um, so I guess bringing that back to the kind of the discussion of what's going to happen in the future is if you're in a, in again, in this non-structured environment where kids can now be matched to their, their academic ability and raised from there, that changes the game when it comes to expectations. Again, yeah. so they're, they're not, you know, for, for kids that are accelerating in one area, they're not being held back because they have minimal expectations. And from other kids uh, that maybe are struggling in an area, there's still at least an expectation for them to attain. And it becomes not, again, not like this is the minimal level for everybody. This is my, this is the level I'm trying to get. So it becomes much more individualized. So yeah. that can be quite exciting, but we will see because uh, education is a big behemoth, just like healthcare systems. It doesn't <laughs> want to change very fast or. Yeah, it, it can be like, turning a you know a tank um around going back uphill i mean it, it's there's so many moving parts to these massive infrastructures um that are resistant to change for the most part um but i think there's what you're saying about children um, or anybody for that matter when you when you act as if this person before you is is gifted or is um that you show belief basically you show belief without even saying the words um, of course words are important but not necessarily saying it directly that i believe in you but all your actions behaviors are in support of that and you give them all that they need to whatever it is that they need to accomplish and you support them um I think people start believing in themselves and they want to rise to the occasion, just like in this pandemic, how sometimes people may not be doing as much or may not feel like they have a purpose or a mission or a meaning. And in the moment someone gives them a reason or um, all eyes are on them, um, or it just feels like there's, there's purpose there, people step up and they will be way more than they've been in the past. And, um, that's the, the beauty of this kind of situation, despite the fact that there are some negative aspects to, you know, any type of, you know, massive challenge for this world. Well, and I think we, we may have talked about this on the last episode. I can't really remember anymore. Um, but the, the other part about what's occurring right now with the pandemic is that the system, which was already under strain before this happened, no, I hope everybody realizes the healthcare system was in not great shape before we entered into this pandemic. And now it's like under critical stress. So when we talk in, who knows, a couple of weeks from now, we could, we could, we'll see even further cracks. Yeah. Uh, but, but it's going to reinforce this, this, this need of self-care, like real effective and what you can do because we have um, a lot of what we have been telling or more importantly, not telling patients about what is effective for them is going to be really, really key mm -hmm. uh, for in the future because it's going to be less expensive and lo and behold, it's actually have better outcomes and it's going to have positive side effects on other chronic conditions. So um, yeah, we're going to return, we're, we're going to have a different level of expectation for people and it's going to, because 
that expectation is going to, you know, the cost of that expectation is going to be, uh, people are going to be more willing to pay the cost of that expectation. And what I mean by that is in the past, for me to, to sit down and discuss and talk about effective behavioral lifestyle interventions, that was a very expensive uh, process for me. It cost me to do that rather than to walk in the room and schedule it for the epidural. It took me five minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the future, when we start, it's going to change the dynamic there because the epidural, which may provide a short little burst for a number of different reasons, the least of which is the actual injection itself, um, that expensive procedure now is a cost. While if we can go in there and get people to 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 take the engaged in their health again and start developing these self care these these empowering tools, um, yeah, that's, that'll. I think there's going to be a lot more focus on that as well. That's again one of the potential gains out of this is, while the healthcare system gets shocked, we're going to see all of that pork and fat and garbage, uh, that all the low value care that sucked up so much money. I, I do think a lot of it is going to disappear because that's not. There's not going to be any pork to fund it anymore. I mean, we're going to be lucky if we come through this with a with a functioning healthcare system. Like personally, I, I, I it, healthcare in its current shape and form is not going to survive this. We, it simply can't based on just how it's set up and the, in the current expense, we're not going to have another $3 trillion to dump into the healthcare system after this first stimulus. Like, I'm not sure where we're going to get the 3 trillion for this stimulus, but. Yeah. Well, I, man, so, so much loaded into that. Um, just to unpack a little bit of it, I would say that I feel like with much of what I've been learning about how people learn, first of all, we've got to listen to patients. And secondly, much of what they um, start in order to shift beliefs in how people view pain and how to address it, a lot of times there has to be an experiential process, meaning there has to be an experience that you go through where something does change and you start believing it, that it actually can be better, um, make it better or worse. I mean, that's part of the learning process is what helps my pain, what doesn't help my pain and whatnot. But I feel like, and I just talked about this in an early interview today, is that I feel like this delayed time period where people can't get all these elective cases such as back fusions or knee scopes and some of these things that are very questable uh for Beyond most demonstrate that they're not <laughs> superior to placebo let's not sugarcoat this well <laughs> I, yeah well i'll say that there is a very rare case not the daily use of them for what we're doing fusions for the most part unless you're in a trauma and things have been totally thrown off kilter and the spine is in the right side of your body or something. So, so in that situation, you're doing the spine fusion for the traumatic displacement, right? Yes. Not pain. Not for pain. Not for pain. Right. It's to protect yeah. the nerves and all the things that could go awry. Um, or, you know, in very rare cases of, you know, some cancer ate away all the bones that's going to, you know, make you unstable and so the surgery is for the cancer right and that's like the key right to to really emphasize is that the actual procedure is not for the pain per se it's fusion's not meant to treat pain no 
it's nope. for something truly needed structurally. That's for, for a structural deficit. And then there can be people that push that into the gray area and try to convince you that you are unstable when you're not. Yeah. Um, but we could go on and on another. <laughs> <laughs> That's for sure. But the cool thing about this is that if there is a silver lining in this delayed ability to get elective cases is that there are going to be, and I, I would probably put a million dollars I don't have on it <laughs> that I can guarantee you there will be a percentage, don't know what that percentage is, that a percentage of people that may have had on the books a surgery that can't get it for like three or four months, they might find, which some of them will, that their pain has changed or has completely gone away by the mere nature of time. And I think the pandemic is gonna affect the pandemic, as I always talk about, is that there might be a belief shift in this sense that my body is actually pretty amazing and it can change and it can heal itself and pain can change. And even though my pain was real, it had changed and what I thought I needed, I might not need. And especially because financially people are going to be in a different predicament. So even if they could get the elective surgery financially, they may not be in a position. So they may go months and months where they can't even get the surgery they thought they needed. And then they end up being better from a pain perspective and uh, that's where I think that that silver lining is for some people to start recognizing that their bodies are capable a lot more thoughts no I, I would agree with that I think it would be a little bit more effective the more we could get that information and awareness out as well messaging yeah um, because the other because on the flip hand other side of that is you're going to have people that are if if you if you have a negative mindset to it meaning mm -hmm. you're seeing this through this kind of this takeaway unpleasant lens and that we can actually heighten the trauma, right? Cause then they're mm -hmm. saying, I really need this. They told me my spine's disintegrating. I can't get it. Mm -hmm. I can't get it. It's only going to get worse. And then becomes the self-fulfilling prophecy as it gets worse over time. And, and then they may have become even more moribund and maybe even more inactive and had a host of other things. Uh, and then they end up getting the surgery six or eight months down the line. And then, then they're even worse off than they were before that, I mean, I'm not saying they should have had the surgery. I just think that we need to, in addition to it, there's a subpopulation that needs, still needs that message. But I'm with you 100% because you've seen it, right? Oh, I've seen, I've seen it. delayed it for whatever host of reason, and they didn't have the surgery. And in this day and age, what I've, because what I've also seen is people getting better who were, you know, scheduled for a surgery, but because they book out the schedules and so far advanced, they're actually getting better up to the day of the surgery, but they do the surgery anyway. Yes, or the, you know, so crazy. Well, and the worst story I ever had was, um, you know, someone who couldn't get for all the wrong reasons. I saw the back surgery. I respect that the back surgeon was improving by the time they saw the back surgeon was walking three miles every day. And the spine surgeon walked in the room without even touching them, looking at him, saying anything, like actually asking him about their pain and said, oh, you need a two level fusion based on the imaging. And they had it and they ended up getting stuck on opioids and uh, had to go through inpatient detoxification, but um, they were improving before they even saw the surgeon, right? And so, it, so that's what you're kind of talking about. If they're improving, they may never even get in to see the surgeon for these non-essential procedures. And then, God, I would hope they just don't, you know, there's like, oh, I'm doing fine. I, I'm not going to go in and see these people. I was going to say quacks, but they're going to see these people. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the thing. I mean, if the only reason someone's getting a surgery is because of pain and the pain goes away, 
you have to ask yourself, why the hell am I putting myself through this when I'm functioning just fine? Um, you know, like there are little nuances there that maybe there's something else. If it's a cancer or something else, it's going to progressively, you know, get worse possibly. But other than that, I mean, there's, it doesn't make any logical sense if I only went to see someone for a possible surgery and it was because of pain and I don't have any neurological deficits None. and I None. get better. And then I decide to do the surgery anyway. Like where's that makes no, no logical sense to me. Well, there was a, uh, I think I used this with Dave Hanscom once when we were talking and I was like, the, if, if you have a broken heart, right, a traumatic breakup and you were absolutely devastated and that can be a long time if you've gone through a really traumatic breakup, it could be yeah. sometimes years in duration, Yeah. but no one's going to walk up to you and say, you know what, let's do a heart transplant because we know you're still hurting in that heart. Uh, and can, granted, you are under some significant trauma with that. But a heart transplant is not going to address that in any way, shape, or form. And no. it would be criminal to do it. And yet when it comes to pain, we do that all the time. Right. Where, um, you know, this, this construct. And then we tell people we're going to somehow cut it out of them without recognizing those other key contributors that are involved with that. Right. Uh, yeah. Anyway. It's like how, how in God's green earth can you, if the pain was solely related to the surgery, the need for surgery, how is it that your pain can get better without the surgery? That's the question you should ask. Yep. That means there's way more involved than the fact that you have a deficit of a surgery. Yep. Anyway, yep. I, don't, I had to get a little emphatic there. Well, and I, I, I went I Kevin on, I went Dr. <laughs> Kevin on y'all. <laughs> usually I'm a ranter. Much more common collected than me. Well, it was, just, it was the, the re, it's the, the energy you just saw was what I had pent up for years, which made me write a book. Otherwise, that book would have never been written. You, you have to have a little bit of, of rant inside of you to actually go through with it. Well, you have to have a little rant. If, if you're doing what we do for pain, meaning purposely not making, quite literally, folks, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars. Mm -hmm. You do it. You're doing it because you care. The only way that happens because of, of really a, of passion and yeah. uh, a desire to do the right thing. Because you will be, you basically are punished. <laughs> In the yeah. old days, you're punished for doing the right thing. Uh, yeah. The new days may change, right? Because yeah. when 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 in the future, this may significantly change. You're going to want people that that can understand pain. You're going to want people that can support you through uh, acute and chronic episodes who can help you to get better so that you can get back to living and functioning and working with your families again, rather than getting worse and yeah. do it in such a way that is not requiring you to come in every two months or three months or every six weeks or multiple refills and getting P tested every whatever. And, and, and having all these rigid guidelines that are really keeping you out of your life again, but instead can help you to get better and back to living. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think that's going to be key in the future. I, I do. Uh, so yeah. It'll be good well, for you. You uh, <laughs> It'll be good for you in the future. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think I think you know this. This is probably a good place to to you know finish off, and uh, I think there's going to be more things coming um, in the coming weeks for us to chat about too that um, relate not just to you know COVID nineteen, but our our various topics that we cover on. Uh, Pandora podcast because man they all somehow they they interlink and interweave with our lives and we're all human we're not robots we we actually have a pretty complex 
um, being that uh, I think we can all relate to in some way or another. And so uh, I want to thank you, Dr. Kevin, for joining me today and uh, reaching back out to our audience. As I'm disappearing here, I was just, I just noticed my own video. I'm like, wow, I'm like disappearing like a ghost again. He, he is ghost-like, um, ghost -like. everybody. It's my Zen spirit <laughs> as I meditate here on my lake. Uh, yeah, so everybody out there, um, uh, thank you so much for listening. If you have any questions, let us know, please. Put them either in the comments or you can email me directly at uh, drkevin at straightshothealth.com. I think, what's your email? What's my email? Yeah. E-R as in doctor, doctor at challengedoctor.com. But doctor at challenge doctor it is but you have to spell it challenge doctor so you, you know maybe doctor too? you what you have to spell the doctor at challenge doctor dr at challenge doctor.com oh just the dr at challenge just doctor. dr yeah. okay That's yeah maybe I, I should make something easier but you know you should yeah you should make something easier because that gets confusing because then you're like we actually put there's a dr and there's a challenge dr i know <laughs> i should i should put something like um connect at challengedoctor.com or something like that but that's very unpersonable it is impersonal yeah uh what what should i use let's maybe oh, we can take a poll katie at challengedoctor.com but then do you spell it dr katie or do you put just yeah, the r katie's easy c-a-d-y yeah so just put the last name katie at challengedoctor.com good but then you want to make sure that you have the doctor in front of it just to but then sure they try to spell out doctor <laughs> See, I'm telling you, it's not as easy. I don't as seem to think. have any problems, and mine's Doctor Kevin at. Well, I don't maybe. have Doctor in the thing. <laughs> no, I don't. It's Straight Shot Health, not Straight Shot Doctor or something. But well, maybe I'll think about that. Maybe I'll do yeah. Doctor Katie at Challenge Doctor. Doctor Katie at Challenge Doctor .com. I think that works well. What do you guys? Okay, think? folks, everybody agrees with me, right? Well, I'll put it. I'll. I'll it's if you just go to ChallengeDoctor.com, <laughs> you can always connect with me. <laughs> How about that? ChallengeDoctor.com. Find me there. Perfect, perfect, perfect. <laughs> All right, everybody, stay safe and socially distant. Until next time, uh, Dr. Kevin, Dr. Melissa Katie, and we'll talk to you soon. Stay healthy. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us today on the Pain Door Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please let us know through a five-star rating on iTunes or your current podcast listening service. And be sure to check out the information and resources available at Pandora.com.